Good afternoon, or good evening, or good morning, or whatever time you're listening to the podcast. Uh, you've tuned into the Mike MikeDragoSports.com pod- podcast, episode two, season one. We got started last week with a preview of the Burks football season. Tonight, we're changing directions a little bit. We have a special guest, former Muhlenberg football coach John Yoakum is going to join us. We'll get to him in a moment, but I just want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Mortgage America, local loans for local homes. Mortgage America is the title sponsor for MikeDragoSports.com, and that's what we're here for tonight to uh, promote the website, which launched August 1st. We're covering Burke's football and soccer. Uh, we uh, have dozens of stories up on the website. We started a few weeks ago. It's going great. We just got through our first weekend of live football and survived all of the uh, thunderstorms and rain, and uh, we still were able to make it out to seven games this week. So everything is going great on MikeDragoSports.com. So let's get to our guest tonight, John Yoakum, a familiar name for any Burks football fan. John was uh, quarterback at Wilson under John Gursky many years ago, was an assistant coach for the Bulldogs, Coached uh, was quarterback coach of Kerry Collins, and then created his own dynasty at Muhlenberg when he was the head coach there in the uh, uh, 1980s and 90s. And uh, John, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you as our first uh, live guest with uh, actual real football credentials. Well, thank you, Mike. I mean, it's it it's really an honor, to, first of all, to be invited to be on a podcast because this is something entirely new to me. Um, someone who's from uh, the old school, the old way of doing things. So anyway, Thank you, Mike. Well, I'm glad you could make it. And uh, uh, first, we have to ask you about the, your um, your trip to Scotland. John flew flew in t- to be here for this show. You know, had to interrupt his uh, golf outing in Scotland, where he was trying to qualify for the uh, the Open. Uh, did it work? I mean, did you qualify qualify for the 2022 uh, British Open? Uh, no, I did not. Um, uh, but uh, thank you for bringing that trip up. It, I mean. I was blessed to be able to go to Scotland with my two sons and uh, five of their friends and uh, the one cousin, and we just got back on Sunday. Uh, it was a great trip. It's great to spend time with your with your boys and uh, and uh, play and play golf at the home of golf and. Uh, uh, but it's great to be here, Mike. And you were at St. Andrews. You played several of the courses there. Is that your first trip to, to golf in Scotland? First of all, yes, it's my first trip to Scotland. Second of all, yes, we did play at St. Andrews. Unfortunately, we were not able, through the luck of the draw, to get on the old course. However, St. Andrews has seven courses that are affiliated, and we got to play four of them. And... Uh, we were able to get to obviously right where they tee off for the old course, and we were there for the uh, green on the 18th. And the bridge, the Swilkin Bridge, I think it's called, uh, after one of the foursomes went through, myself and the other six guys, we ran out, <laughs> and we all we all got a spot on the bridge, and we got one of the foursome members that had just gone through, and they took our picture and. Uh, and it really was a lot of fun. I mean, we really enjoyed it, but uh, uh, it's good to be home, though. 
Well, I'm glad you could make it back in time for this. Uh, did you? Uh, were you? Did you have a chance to catch up with any of the football scores from Week One? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, through the power of the internet, and uh, when you're with a bunch of forty-year-olds like I was, they know how to do anything and everything on their cell phones. So yes, I did know that most of the games were called off on Friday night. I did know that we were expecting some severe storms here in Berks County, even though I was all the way over in Scotland. Uh, and then, of course, on uh, Sunday when we were flying home, as soon as I landed, then I got all of it. And I got all of it. Now, I know you're a subscriber to uh, MikeDragoSports.com. Were you able to log on from Scotland and uh, read any of our stories? You know, to be honest with you, Mike, I didn't have any time. It was like a whirlwind with these guys. Uh, we were playing golf. We were eating fish and chips. And I hate to say, we were testing some of the Scotch and the uh, uh, Scottish beers, let's say. So I was kind of like the chaperone for these guys. So I really didn't have a whole lot of time to just sit around and bring up MikeDrago.com. <laughs> well, you know, I can I can track uh, the people that are uh, on the website in live time. And there's a map and I can see anywhere in the country or the world. And there's somebody in Ireland who's been reading uh, reading our stories. I don't know who it is, but uh, every now and then I pop up and there's this somebody there's enjoying. It must be a football fan, former, former Burks football fan who's now relocated to Ireland. So you can get MikeDragosports.com anywhere in the world. Anyway, let's talk, uh, let's talk some football. And, and John was the head coach at Muhlenberg from 1989 to 2008 and just had tremendous success there. 167 wins in those 20 seasons. Uh, John ranks fourth all time in Berks County history in terms of victories. I mean, and he's even ahead of his old coach, John Gursky. You're still ahead of Doug Doms, at least for a few more weeks. You got you got the edge on him, so uh, I kind of think he's gonna he's gonna catch you this year. But uh, you're you're in uh, in uh, quite an elite neighborhood when you've got guys like Bob Wolfram and, and Ray Lynn, and of course Jerry Slemmer, your old teammate. Uh, you know, when you later in your career, when you started passing milestones, and you know, I would call you and say, you know, John, you 150 wins, and you passed this guy and that guy, and 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 you passed your old coach. And what was that like for you to to do that too? Because I'm sure you know, like all of his players, you looked up to Coach Gursky, uh, and then you know, 20, 30 years later, you're doing the same things he's doing and having that same kind of success. Well, it was very humbling uh, to first of all be reminded, like you would, that hey, you've just surpassed this person or that person. And in all honesty, Mike. Those types of things were never something that drove me to get into coaching. Uh, you know, we get into coaching usually to work with kids because we love the game. We want to teach the game. We've learned the game from somebody. And as you mentioned, I, I was fortunate and really blessed to learn the game from, uh, from John Gursky and learn how to coach by watching John Gursky. Uh, he also had he also had a great staff of guys, and that kind of gave me the background as I approached the idea of coaching. But uh, he had a guy by the name of Ray Ritchie, who was the offensive uh, backfield coach, 
And uh, I've often said this, you know, when people ask me about my background at Wilson. I learned coaching from John Gursky, but I learned football from Ray Ritchie. Uh, when I played quarterback in the late 60s, that was a time when we called our own plays. Plays were not sent I in. did not know that. And, I would have uh, assumed that, that Coach well, Gursky was sending those in. I can only relate to, you know, the fact that that's the way we did it at Wilson. Maybe other schools, I mean, I don't know. But I know that on a thir every Thursday before a game, Ray Ritchie would have me over to his house. I would get done with practice. I would go home. I would eat. And then I'd be at Ray Ritchie's house by around 7 o'clock. And there we would sit for about an hour with the old projector, and he would show a game film of the team that we're going to play the next night. And this is just the night before. And while we're watching this game film, he would be saying, okay, first and ten, Yoakum, this is what I want you to think about. Second and ten. And he had that coal region kind of twang like this. Uh, when we get to third and long, this is what, you know, so I would... I would jot these down, but in my mind, I was starting to think about it. So when we get it in the game, now, let me take a step back. We only had a handful of plays now, too. It wasn't like <laughs> I had, it wasn't like I had a card catalog of plays in my mind. We had a handful of plays that you could run right and the same play run left. Uh, but anyway, yes, so that's why I say I learned a lot of football from Ray Ritchie and... Uh, now, was that the first time you watched film was on a Thursday night, or had you been watching it earlier in the week? We never wa I mean, we watched film on a Monday. Like, if we played that previous Saturday, Monday after we'd do a running workout, I'm talking the varsity now, then, uh, then we'd go up, go up to the high school in, in, uh, in Coach Gursky's room, and we'd sit there. He'd put the game film on from what we from what we just played. But then he would have a film that we would look at of the upcoming team. But that would be it. I mean, we did not we didn't have the media and uh, and the technology back then to go home and bring up huddle or, or you know and do things like that. And so to answer your first question, I just watched. We we as a team would watch a little bit on Monday. But then I wouldn't see him again until Thursday night over to Coach Ritchie's house. That's amazing because to bring it up to date, players now can sit in class and I'm, I'm not sure if they're allowed to, but they can pull out their phone and they can watch huddle video of the next opponent of the if you're a lineman of the, the guy you're going against, if you're a defensive back, you can watch the other team's receivers on your phone or you know your laptop if you have that available. It's just it's incredible how the game has advanced in, you know, 50 years. It truly is. And really, all those things that you just mentioned in terms of the huddle, all that has come since 2009. My last season was 08, and I retired from Muhlenberg as, a, as an educator in June of 09. And it's been since then that all of this stuff that you just mentioned has come about. Pretty amazing. So let's go back to Coach Gursky. Uh, I believe he came in to Wilson in 1964. Is that about right? What it's about there. Yeah, what yeah. grade would you have been in at that point? I'm, I'm trying to think, and, I, and you know, I hope I don't say this wrong, but I kind of think I was in eighth grade when uh, 
when Coach Gursky and uh, Coach Ritchie came in and he put his staff together, which also included Bill Morgan, who, you know, is a pretty uh, common name around high school football here. And then Bernie Stoppi came in, which was his old staff. But anyway, it I was in eighth grade at that time. I was a junior high football player. And what was your, uh, what was the word around West Lawn when, when John Gursky showed up? It was, did people know what they were in for? Because Wilson football at that time, let me tell you, to people who don't know, was really nothing special. It was, you know, 500 at, at best uh, type of program. Uh, the Bulldogs, until John Gursky showed up, were nothing nothing special, nothing close to what they resemble now. What was the buzz you know, among the players, your friends, when you heard well, about it? Well, you know, that's a good question. Try to put yourself in, in our position. We're in eighth grade. Eighth graders don't really know a whole lot what's going on. Uh, I'm sure all the adults and the parents knew that there was this big fellow coming down from Minersville. And of course, what all we knew from hearing adults talk was how good Cole Region football was. So now we're going to have one of these guys, one of these coaches from that area coming down to coach us. So we knew there was going to be some kind of change. We had no idea what. And boy, did it change. And it changed in a hurry. And um, uh, if I can remember as that, in that eighth grade year, I think John might have gone five and five his first year, uh, which, you know, doesn't sound like anything. Well, it's good. They were one, eight and one the year before. So five and five, um, they must have had a parade for the guy. Yeah. And uh we knew back then, as soon as that occurred, that the Wilson program had has changed. And uh, so then, then you go into our next year, our ninth grade year, and I, I can't remember what, what John went. He might have gone five and five again. Uh, but you could sense that there was a big emphasis on lifting weights because John actually drove down to Lincoln Park Elementary with a red and white old Chevy station wagon loaded. I mean, the back end was almost dragging because he had 25, 45 pound plates on the back. And he made numerous trips that I found out later from where he lived in Minersville down. Uh, and we had a weight room at the Lincoln Park Elementary in the basement. And that's where we, we, we would lift during the summers. And, and again, just to remind people we're talking the mid early to mid 60s weightlifting i mean today it's not even a question it's it's just you have to do it 12 months a year if you want to get out on that field isn't it you know we we've, we've that's been the case for 30 years now but at the time that was sort of uh i don't know if revolutionary is too strong of a word but it was a it was a big change around here right that that emphasis on weight training and and even off-season training it was a big change because from what from what I remember, there was a uh, there was a guy that lived across the street from me in Lincoln Park, um, and he was about five six years older than me, and he played football at Wilson, and I just remember like two weeks before the season started, he'd be in his he'd be in his garage by himself with a little skinny barbell, you know, and you know so people would just like lift weights on their own maybe if they did that. They would run as a group. Also, back then, you were not allowed, and I don't know if the PIAA was the one that stated this, but 
you were not allowed to do any kind of workouts with a coach. You had to do it as players on your own. Because uh, by the time I got to high school, I remember Coach Gursky giving me a bag of footballs and telling me things that he wanted me to do, and then I would I would get the guys together and we would meet at the Lincoln Park Playground and run through plays and things like that. You're listening to the MikeDragosports.com podcast, a weekly feature of our website. I'm sitting in the uh, MikeDragosports.com studio with John Yoakum, the former head coach at Muhlenberg and former Wilson Bulldogs quarterback. We're talking about the old days when Coach John Gursky showed up in West Lawn. And uh, uh, your uh, your senior season, was that uh, 69? Mm-hmm. 69. Let's go back to 68. You you guys had quite a team. You went unbeaten, ten and zero, Tri County League Championship uh, champions. Uh, t- tell me about some of the guys you played with on that team. Are you talking about the '69 you, team? You, no, the yeah, your ten and zero season. Okay, yeah. that was the season of '69 because because we graduated in '70. We had a very unique team. We had a tremendous football team, and really, uh, it was the. It was the easiest position to be the quarterback. <laughs> I was I was not the kind of quarterback that uh, that you have in in the game today. But our our team consisted of uh, I'll I'll start with Jerry and Harold Slemmer. Grew up in uh, in West Wyoming, missing, and Harold was our center, and Jerry was our right tackle, and those two guys wound up going and playing at Arizona State. We had a right guard named Frank Pupor, who was another Lincoln Park kid, big kid. He wound up leaving right after high school, and he worked in heavy, heavy equipment in, in the city of Detroit. On our left guard was Gary Leupold. He was about 5'7", 155 pounds, and he wound up going to the Naval Academy and playing under, uh, what, 175 football maybe? And then our left tackle was a guy by the name of Joe Federovich, who uh, he didn't play college football, but he was, he was a tough kid from Sinking Spring. Then our right end was uh, a, a fellow by the name of Rick Failing, and maybe you know the name Rick Failing. He was an outstanding swimmer at Wilson and a, a really good tight end and DN for us at Wilson. Then he went on to play at Yale. And then our left end was a guy by the name of Scott Simpson, a West, a West Lawn kid, he wound up playing at Albright. So you're hearing we had a lot of guys that went on to play college football, and at that time, I think that was kind of a unique thing. So not only did we have some strength and some size, but we had a lot of intelligence on that football team. I was the quarterback, and our one running back was, was a fellow by the name of Craig Ritz, the younger brother of Mike Ritz who went on to play at Penn State and then Maryland. And we had a junior running back by the name of Barry Hess, who, uh, boy, a a real strong, powerful runner. Uh, We used a couple of fullbacks. We had uh, Denny Regal, a a West Wyoming kid, and a kid by the name of Mike Kreider. Uh, Mike Kreider played for, uh, was a junior, and he was a fullback. Boy, I I really don't want to miss anybody. Uh, We had some... uh, and, oh, I, I, I should mention now, not everybody played both ways for them. John Gursky tried to instill a platoon system. So we had guys playing one way, 
most of the time. And uh, we had some defensive players like Tommy Ulrich from uh, Lincoln Park. He played defensive back. We had Terry Wickman from North Whitfield. Uh, I just don't want to miss anybody. Oh, Steve Goss was a defensive lineman from sink, from Sinking Spring, and uh, but anyway, we had we had a pretty good football team, and that was the first ten and O team ever at Wilson. It must have been a big no. I'm, a, I'm th- no, you were unfortunately not. there was a ten and O team in '67 because uh, oh. we because we were yep. sophomores. You're right. Then. Okay, you're right. We were sophomores, and that team had Mike Ritz. Okay, they had Glenn Hare at quarterback. They had a fullback by the name of Bill Hawes, who was a longtime teacher and coach uh, at Wilson and a good friend of mine and a pretty good golfer, I may say, too. Uh, but, yes, so, so it was unique that our class was a part of the first two undefeated teams at Wilson. We were sophomores and then we were seniors. I'm looking at the scores from your uh, 1969 season. Only one really close game, the ninth week against uh, Cedarcrest. Everything else you guys won handily. Uh, what do you recall about that Cedarcrest game? Did you have to pull, pull that out late? Or, uh... Well, yes, we did. And you know what? Whenever we get together, and I'm talking about the guys on the team, and uh, whenever we do get together, uh, we all reminisce and that game invariably comes up and uh, real quick they had a coach by the name of Norby Dance who uh, later then coached at uh, Lancaster McCaskey and then I think he went back to back to Cedar Crest but anyway it was a it was a really gray cold uh, early November afternoon up at up at Cedar Crest and to make a long story really short we get the ball with like two and a half minutes to go in the game, and we're losing. We're losing 21-16, something like that. And if any of my buddies that are playing think that I'm wrong about that score, I'm sorry. But uh, it was something like 21-16. We get the ball with like a minute and a half, whatever. And Ray Ritchie says to me, Yoakum, keep the ball on the ground. We don't want to do anything dumb here. All right, so all of a sudden, we get the ball in the 20, and we start to march. Four yards here, five yards there, and we're just running our base stuff. Left, right, then we run a fullback inside, then we run a trap. We work our way down, and we're about on the 10-yard line, 10 or 12-yard line. There's seconds, you know, maybe 10, 15 seconds. We have a third and, I don't know, third and four. And I ran a play where we faked the off tackle. I would keep outside. And then we would send both ends. The end of the side of the play was going to break deep. The end opposite side would come across. Well, the end coming across was Rick failing. And as I'm rolling out, I look back and I saw Rick coming across. And he was was 6'1 or 6'2". I threw the ball up to him. He went up, made a great catch with two hands, came down in the end zone. We held on and won the game 24-21. And that's how the thing ended. So so we were able to preserve the undefeated season. We were now 9-0, and our last game was always Governor Mifflin. 
And I can remember, Mike, I can remember like it was yesterday, going in that locker room after the game. We're all happy. We're all going crazy. All the parents have come down out of, out of the bleachers. But we go in the locker room. The door closes shut, and Gursky comes in and continues to ream us out up and down. And one of the last things he says is, I don't want to see any of you guys talking to a girl this week in the halls. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm telling you, we're all looking at each other. We just realized, holy smokes, we just escaped. And we are undefeated, and we have a, a heck of an opportunity in front of us. That's great. And then, of course, you beat Mifflin the, the next week rather handily. So I guess his strategy of no talking to the girls worked. Oh, yeah. That's uh, that's. Good. I, I I have imagined that when you got to Muhlenberg, you didn't you didn't use the same strategies that did no, you? No, I I don't recall ever saying do not talk. I mean, I I might have thought that a couple times, you know, when things weren't going real well. But no. One last thing about Wilson. Then we have to get to Muhlenberg because uh, you know you had so many great years there. But you you returned. You you played at Gettysburg College, and then you returned to Wilson as an assistant coach, and then quarterbacks coach, and you got this. This guy from Lebanon named Kerry Collins. Tell me about your first impressions of him and 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 uh, what it was like to uh, you know coach someone who was going to go on and play in the NFL for I think eighteen years. Well, first of all, let me preface it uh, uh, right right after Gettysburg or right after I graduated from Gettysburg, I got hired at Muhlenberg and I was an assistant there for uh, eleven years, and then uh, and then without getting into anything here. Uh, I then went to Central Catholic one year as an assistant with John Artie. John okay. Artie had just gotten the head job. And I was there one year, and I get a call from Jerry Slemmer, who was the head football coach at that time at Wilson, calls me like, oh, God, like in the middle of January. He said, hey, would you feel like coming and coaching with us next year? And this is 1986. This is 86. And... I, I said, let me think about it. And I just put my hand on the phone for about two seconds. I said, yes. And so I went over to Wilson for the season of 86, 87, and 88. And uh, this would have been during the season of 87. I remember we were all, when I say, when I say we, we all, I'm talking our staff, uh, we're down at McCaskey and we're scouting a... Uh, they played Saturday morning games and we're scouting a Saturday morning game and it's halftime and we all went, you know, to get something to drink or whatever or walk around. And after halftime, Jerry comes over to us and he says, hey, this guy just came up to us. You know, Jerry talks a little rough like this and he says, hey, this guy comes over to me and he says, hey, I'm going to move to Wilson and my son is, is a sophomore at Lebanon. And that's all Jerry said to us, I didn't know any, we didn't know anything more than that because as it turned out to be Carrie, Carrie's older brother was the starting quarterback at Lebanon. And I, I can't remember if, if Carrie was starting to get playing time or whatever, but that's, that, that was all I knew. And then, uh, right after the football season, lo and behold, Kerry Collins enrolls at Wilson School District, and I know his father had moved down to West Lawn and was living in West Lawn. And uh, at, at that point, Jerry, you know, as we're getting ready to coach the next season, which would have been 
88, I worked with a quarterback. So I'm going to be working with this kid from Lebanon, and I don't know anything about him. And he was a junior at that? And he was a sophomore, going to be a junior. Okay. Mm -hmm. Going to be a junior, yes. So I had him when he was a junior. And uh, uh, I really, truly have to say this, Mike. Don't give me too much credit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> don't, 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 don't tell people on this podcast that I coached Kerry Collins to what, cause I did not do that. This kid had talent, raw talent. I mean, um, the phrase live arm, he had a live arm as a junior in high school. And he was, he was, he was a six, two, six, three drip of water at that time, but he could throw the ball and he had instincts and people don't realize that he had some speed too for that, for that size. So not only could he throw the ball and and run an offense, but but he could take off with it too. But anyway, he, he was a real pleasure to coach. Did, did any sense at that time? I mean, he, he had a big arm and he was a big kid. But any sense of of his potential at that time? I can't say that first double sessions that you know those two weeks of double sessions there was no way I was going to say oh this kid's going to play at Penn State I knew that he had potential first of all because of his size and second of all because of the way he could throw you know when you talk about quarterbacks that can throw a five yard out you know which is one of the toughest throws to get it out there in a hurry he could do that and so you knew that he had potential. And also that summer, we had gone up to uh, East Stroudsburg Passing Camp. There was a guy up there by the name of Mike Terwilliger who had played at Cacalico, and then he played at uh, uh, East Stroudsburg. And uh, he, he was watching Kerry up there, and he was telling us up at that camp, I'll tell you, this kid really, really has the possibilities. So... You know, so to answer your question, did we know then? No, I can't say we knew, but we knew that there was some kind of potential. Let's move on to uh, your Muhlenberg, Muhlenberg years and uh, uh, talk about that. And Muhlenberg, uh, like I said about Wilson, Muhlenberg at the time, the program was a, a middling program. They had a few good years. They had, uh, you know, some championships, but mostly sort of a 500-type program when, when you took over. What... Uh, why did you take that job? What did you see? Did you see any kind of potential there to, 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 to you know, did you see what could, what the possibilities were that, that you could have the kind of success that you did? Well, first of all, I could have stayed at Wilson as an assistant coach and been happy, but remember now, I'm teaching at Muhlenberg. I'm teaching at Muhlenberg, and uh, so I knew all the kids as they were coming up through. Uh, the previous uh, staff uh, was okay as, in terms of wins and losses, but you're right. I mean, they were not they were not uh, producing like you would hope to see. And there was that little thing in the back of my mind saying, "What could I do if I was a head coach? Do I want to do? I mean, really, do I want to leave this nice position at Wilson?" and uh, step into the fire and the more I thought about it and the fact that I taught there I thought yes I'm going to give this a shot I'm going to go after it and uh, I already knew that uh, I would put in the football program that I played for 
and now was coaching with, which by the way, when Jerry Slemmer was coaching, he took what John Gursky did, tweaked it here and there, hooked up with Mike Terwilliger, who I mentioned, who was up at East Strasburg, who was a really good uh, offensive coordinator, quarterback type. Uh, so the Wilson program started to expand offensively. They were still running the 6-2 then. So I knew that I was going to install that at, at Muhlenberg. And I was going to keep things as simple as I could. And, uh, you know, hopefully build a really good foundation. Because I remember talking to those kids that first year at Muhlenberg. You guys are the foundation of this new program. You know, I didn't take them to a camp that year. I didn't go anywhere. I kept them at school. And we worked on the basic I formation offense and we worked on the the old Wilson 6-2 defense and those were actually two offenses pretty much or two parts of the game that a lot of the schools did not see the all a lot of the teams ran the wing tee they you know the IC back then was pretty much of a wing tee league so now they were going to have an eye now Conard Weiser ran the eye but anyway so I knew going in that I was going to install what I considered a uh, a tweaked Wilson system. And as I remember it, your teams, the, the good teams at Muhlenberg, and they were all really good, but you had some great teams. But you you were just physically more dominant, stronger than the other teams. And I and I think your the weight program that you brought, you were ahead of the game, and and the other the other teams had to catch up and adapt. Am I right that, well, that you kind of set the tone there? I can't speak for what the other teams were doing in terms of their weight program, but I did, or we were, we were able to establish a weight program at Muhlenberg then. Uh, we did start to have uh, the strength and conditioning program where the kids could sign up for as their phys ed, as their phys ed re, a requirement. And then, of course, I'd be in the weight room with them. So, yes, we did get stronger. That was number one. Number two, I really wanted to install a two-platoon system. And, and uh, when, when we put our staff together, I want to make sure that, yes, there are times when we're going to put kids on the field that you're going to look like, hey, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't do this. But you know what? If you take an average football player and you put them on that practice field and practice that one position every day and then give him an opportunity they're going to come through, and I, I, will, I will argue that to this day. And I think that a lot of high school coaches are missing the boat if you don't platoon kids. But anyway, so I think by putting a simple system, uh, a, a very proven system in the Wilson offense and defense, and then platooning, because that gets more kids playing, keeps more kids happy, and above all, keeps more parents happy, and then... You start to win games, you generate excitement. Next thing you know, you have more kids coming out to play. So our rosters were in the 60 to 70 range. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your first season, I mean, right off the bat, you go eight and three, eight wins the first year, seven wins the third year, you win the IC championship. And uh, just to go back a little bit, in those days, there were, there were no divisions Every team in the IC, the Intercounty League, played every other team. So no matter what size you were, you were playing the small schools like Central Catholic and Holy Name and Why I'm Missing. They were playing the bigger schools. 
you know, uh, Muhlenberg and Exeter, everybody was was in one league. Uh, it's gotten away from that in the last 20 years or so. Do, do you miss do you miss that part of it? Did you did, I never heard anybody complain back then like, oh, we have to play this big school. Exeter's bigger than us. I mean, am I right? Did, did people complain the way they do now? I don't recall, you know, I mean, that's a question that I really wasn't expecting you to ask me, Mike. So now I'm going to try to dance a, uh, dance a little bit here. Uh, you, you know what? No, I, I really can't say that I remember uh, anybody saying anything to me about, oh, well, you got to play Kutztown this week. Uh, that's just the way it was. I right. mean, that was the league. That's the way it was set up. Right. And you just go along with it. Uh, and this was before district playoffs. Uh, and I think that that changed it. I think the 81, around 80, 81 was the first year districts. Right. And it took us a while to get into the culture. But once district playoffs got established, people became more aware of classifications because it was a power rating system. And then, you know, nobody wanted to play the smaller schools if you're afraid that they're going to beat you. And and the smaller schools didn't want to play the bigger schools because they, you know, they wanted to have a chance to win. And everybody was pr protecting themselves for, for power ratings. And I think that really changed the mentality of, of a lot of high school football, for better or worse. I mean, I love the playoffs, but like I said, back then you just you played your schedule, your league schedule, no matter who it was. Right, and that's the way it was. And, you know... When I played high school football at Wilson, uh, there were no playoffs. I mean, everybody played a 10-game schedule. Your first game was, I can't remember if it, it was the first Saturday after Labor Day. And therefore, your 10-game your season would end like uh, the second Saturday in November. Right. And then there would be, you know, like a week break and then you'd start winter sports practices it was, it was something like that so I grew up in a time when there wasn't playoffs and uh, and then when the playoffs started well that generated a whole different uh, interest uh, because now rather than just being in in Berks County you were now going to put yourself up against schools in District 3 from all over from Lancaster Lebanon York and Harrisburg. So, as I said, you had, you had a number of, of, of really good teams at Muhlenberg, but two, two stick out that I, I want to ask you about. Of course, the first one was 92 when you went uh, unbeaten. And um, I think that was the first time at Muhlenberg. No, 72, they were 10 and 0. But that'd been a long time. That was almost uh, well, 20 years between 10 and 0 seasons. What do you give me a, a quick recollection about that? Um, 92 season and 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 running through the league the way he did because at the time uh it was one of the, and it still is one of the most dominant teams ever in inter-county league history well that team that team was unique a bunch of individuals they were so much fun they were they were so much fun to practice with they were so much fun to be in the weight room with these guys pushed each other they loved to hit. I mean, Mike, there were times when we would break up fights. And, I, and, I, and I'm not just saying that. I, I remember seeing a defensive end coming down hard on it like, like an offensive tackle. And, uh, 
Our practices were, quite honestly, tougher than games. I can believe that. They really were. <laughs> now, we also did a lot of hitting back then. You know, the game has changed to what they are now. But that, but that 92 team had a lot, of, a lot of tough kids, talented kids, uh, and they just enjoyed coming off and hitting people. You had a, a linebacker, Al Murray, who was linebacker of the year. He kind of reminded me of the, the Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Remember that game from the 70s or 80s, whenever that was. And your quarterback and, and defensive back, Kirk Siders, was very good. He was D-back of the year. Mel Fegley was your tailback. He was, he was your leading rusher. Uh, you know, just an incredible team. I, I think in the regular season, you allowed five touchdowns in 10, 10 games, which is just crazy. And you just beat the crap out of people. It was just amazing. Well, you know what? Now, you mentioned you mentioned our defense, and, and I thank you for doing that because uh, too many times we as coaches and everything talk about offense, but you're right. Our defense was outstanding. And let's go back. We ran the 6-2. No one in the league ran the 6-2. And they ran the 4-4, which is really going to look like it, but we would put small, quick kids inside where the guards were and play all kinds of games. And uh, that would cause some problems. Whereas, you know, in the 4-4, you're putting large tackles in there. So that, I think that was a big advantage for us, that schools did not really, truly know how to block that 6-2 at times. Now, I was going back today doing a little research about the 92 team, and I found this this quote that you said at the end of that season, honest to goodness, it's difficult to imagine we're ever going to achieve uh, the same kind of heights we did this year in 1992. And then a few years later, 1998, you had another outstanding team with uh, uh, Robbie Flowers was your quarterback and Jason Reinhardt. Jason, the sensation, I called him, was your tailback. And still one of the all-time great running backs in, in uh, IC history. Um, again, another perfect run. Uh, what, tell me about the, um, you, you said the, the 92 team, which is a bunch of tough kids like to hit. What was the personality of the 98 team? 98 team was very similar. Uh, but by the time we got to 98, we had started to evolve a little bit more on both sides of the ball. Uh, offensively, we started to spread things out with our alignments. Not so much, we didn't go to shotgun with Robbie Flowers, but knowing that we had Flowers and that we had Reinhardt, we wanted to go to a single back look and we wanted to balance up the whole, the whole offense. So we ran a lot of double tight end double wide receiver and then we'd have flowers and uh, reinhardt so that created that created uh, problems for any defense because we had so much speed and we had the threat of the of the long ball and we had the threat of uh, of our running game because we ran the option with it as well then on the defensive side of the ball we started to go a little bit away away from the six two because eh, you were now allowed to use your hands to block. Okay, so when you can use your hands to block, those little guys on the inside now uh, could be equalized very easily with, with the hands. But the 98 team was also a fun group of kids, uh, intelligent group of kids. 
and we were able to do some things offensively uh, that we hadn't done before. Yeah, I mean, your quarterback and your tailback, I mean, first Rob Flowers could throw it and run it. He was a, he was a threat out of the backfield if things broke down. You know, he was a, tr- a great runner. And, and Jason, I mean, eight, I think he gained yeah 1,883 yards, 39 touchdowns in 12 games. I mean, those are crazy numbers uh, even today in this offensive era. And this is uh, t- almost 23 years ago. Th- those are amazing numbers. He was a tremendous player. Amazing, amazing. J- uh, Jason was one of those, uh, uh, he wasn't real tall. He was kind of a short kid with very thick legs, very thick legs, had a low center of gravity, and had an uncanny ability to cut, plant, and get back to full speed quicker than anybody I'd ever seen. Right. Uh, so you had that threat on every play. Every time he touched the ball, he could go with it. And, of course, Robbie Flowers was just uh, just a leader. I mean, not only did he have all the skills that you want in a quarterback, but he was a leader. And uh, our kids followed Robbie Flowers. Okay, so here's the, the tough question you've were you you've been waiting for all night. You were afraid I was going to ask you this. 92 and 98, both great teams, perfect run through the regular season. Who, who was the better team? I, I, you know what, Mike? I, I can't believe you're asking me this question. <laughs> I've been you waiting 20 years to you ask you that. And it does happen every now and then if I'm in a conversation and uh, somebody will say, you know, it's really not fair to say which one is better. Because if, if, if any of these guys are listening to this podcast, one, you know, one group's going to be angry with me. That's right. Uh, That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I want, I know. want yeah, somebody to be upset at thing, you. You want to stir things up. I, you know. Uh, <laughs> Boy, oh boy, that would be really, really tough to do, and I'm going to take the fifth. Uh, I knew you weren't going to answer that, but I just wanted to tweak you a little bit there. But, I, you know, they're to me, still two of the top ten teams all time in, in league history, and that's saying something because why Missing's had a lot of great teams, and, of course, they went 16-0. and Burke's Catholic recently yeah. has had some tremendous teams. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a, the league's over 70 years old, and, and this is – um, the last year of the Intercounty League. Now, I wrote a story for MikeDragoSports.com. Really, one of the first stories I wrote about it was um, the next year, all of the Burks teams are joining Wilson in the Lancaster Lebanon League. It's, it's going to be a massive five sections, 37 teams. It's going to be interesting, and it's going to be good for a lot of these teams, especially the smaller schools. You know, Kutztown and Hamburg, Schuylkill Valley, they're going to be in Section 5, and they won't have to worry about playing Why Missing and Burks Catholic and Conrad Weiser. It's going to be good for them. Uh, Wilson will remain in Section 1 with the teams they're playing now. Uh, Burke's Catholic and Missing will be together in Section 4, which is going to be tremendous. Uh, but, I, you know, as good as that sounds, and there are a lot of positives, I, I just feel we're, we're losing a little something, some identity of Burke's County football. You, you, you know where I'm coming from. Do you feel any of that? Well, you, you know, I... Unless you can schedule some of the rival games uh, that have been so big in in Berks County, if you can still schedule those, that will keep some semblance of it. But I know exactly what you're saying. To me, I I coached at a time when every Saturday morning you'd wake up, you'd get the paper, and you would see all the games of Berks County. And... uh, 
it was kind of a neat thing. And, and now to all of a sudden have this team playing a team from Western Lan Lancaster County. Yeah, uh, I have to agree with you. It's, it's, it's going to be different. It'll be exciting for the fans to see some, to see some of our teams play some of their teams. But, uh, but I know exactly what you're saying, and I have to agree with that. Yeah, and I'm not against the move. I, I think it's it's a progressive move, and it's gonna it's there are a lot of benefits to it. But just from a historical standpoint, um, you know, I just I need to note this is this is the end of uh, of what a league that a lot of people. I mean, everyone here grew up with the intercounty league, the IC. They they still call it the IC, even though it hasn't been called the IC in mm -hmm. 20 years. But you, you, when somebody says the IC, you know what they're talking about. So it, it's it's been great. Let me uh, uh, wrap wrap it up on on uh, on this. And uh, now you, and I didn't realize it because time flies. And you, as you said, your last year was 2008. That's 13 years um, since you've been out of coaching. You're, you're the, uh, we're in the huddle area, uh, huddle era, I guess, is the way to call it, huddle era. And the game has really, really changed a lot, even since since you left, but particularly when from the time you you became a head coach. Are you you're a little amazed sometimes at how the game has evolved? And and part two, is it is it a better game now than 25, 30 years ago? Well, the game has changed, and... Uh... Uh, I think this conversation is done all the time uh, with 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 people involved with the sport of football. Uh, you have the guys like myself who are from the old way of playing. Okay, when when you played hurt, when uh, you did not want to come out of a game because you were afraid someone else was going to go in. Well, that all has changed, and uh, probably in a good way. Uh, and, uh, probably some of the trainers that have worked with me, if they listen to this, they're going to be shaking their head thinking, oh my God, this isn't the coach Yoakum that I remember. But anyway, uh, yes, the game has changed, uh, with the concussion protocols and everything now. And, uh, the trainers quite honestly have more power on the sidelines, uh, in terms of who plays and who doesn't play than the coach. Uh, and I think it is, it is for a good reason because, you know, how many kids play high school football get a chance to go on to play at the next level of college? It's not that many. And so, therefore, we should be playing football for the fun of it. We should be playing football for the experience and all the benefits that you get out of playing football. But if you, haven't, if you hadn't made these changes to protect the kids – we're going to continue to see more kids having the same kind of problems that some of these old professionals that are having. And who knows how many guys who never even played college or beyond high school are having problems with it because of the uh, things that they, you know, injuries that they dealt with. You're listening to the Mike MikeDragoSports.com weekly football podcast. My guest is John Yoakum, former Wilson quarterback and Muhlenberg head coach. The uh, MikeDragoSports.com podcast is brought to you by Mortgage America, local loans for local homes. And we'll be here each week throughout the season. John, one last question, and, and, and 
I'll, I'll say this three or four times, one last question, because I keep thinking of things I want to bring up to you. But you, you um, are still connected to the sport. I know you still have a lot of friends in the, in the coaching. You still have a lot of your former players that are, that are coaches now. Rob Flowers is at Daniel Boone, for, for example. And, and Rick Perez, the basketball coach at Reading High, played a wide receiver at Muhlenberg for you. And, and Matt Bowers at Exeter. That's, oh, that's right. Matt Bowers was a tight end. I remember him. He played at Muhlenberg. He's done a great job at Exeter. So what is, you know, what is your advice to young coaches? And, and I'm sure some of them, they'll come up to you before they get a head coaching or an assistant coaching job and ask for some advice. What, you know, what are the basic things that you would tell somebody? Well, I mean, you know, really, Mike, that's a tough question. Uh, I mean, I think everybody that has been involved in coaching is going to have their own philosophy of what of what you would say. But I would say, first of all, are you sure you want to be the man in the spotlight? Because uh, because most guys that become head coaches have been assistants for a while, and as an assistant you are obviously somewhat shielded uh, from all the criticisms or all the accolades or whatever. So make sure that you get in it for the right reason. I mean, get in it uh, to work with kids, to help kids, to understand kids. Uh, and my biggest thing is keep things simple because you're going to have kids nowadays that play video games while they're young they're not out playing touch football like we used to play touch football at the corner lot that's all we did i mean every, all year long really and i mean well, well, baseball would kind of stop in july and then you got the footballs out and right. that was it that's all you and did you, you know uh, our kids don't do that uh they watch espn and i i, I I see so I see so many coaches now that they're that they're doing things that I call it the ESPN offense. They're watching what's being done at uh, Ohio State. They're watching what's being done at the uh, University of Texas, and and they want to do that at the high school level. When maybe maybe look at your talent pool, and determine you know what let's pare things down a little bit. Because if you send a 17, 16-year-old kid out in that field and he's not 100% sure of what he's doing, he's not going to perform to his highest level, to his highest ability. But if you give him a handful of things and practice those things over and over and he proves that he can do it, now you add a little bit here, then you add a little bit there. Next thing you know, your offense has expanded as the season is going. But if you try to do too much too soon, it can be very frustrating for kids. Rick Healy always says, uh, the Burks Catholic coach and former Holy Name coach, it's the Jimmys and Joes, not the X's and O's. And, you know, you can have the greatest schematics in the world, but if you don't have the kids that can execute it, the plays don't work. You've got to have a, a you know a quarterback with a strong arm if you're going to run certain offenses, and you have to have kids that can block if you're going to run certain offenses. And if you don't, you know, it's not going to work. And and you know when a new coach is hired, and and I'll call him and interview him and write a story about a new coach, and I can almost know that the guy is doomed for failure when I'll say, well, what are you going to run on offense? And he starts to rattle off 
four or five. We're going to be multiple. We're going to do. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to. And I'm saying you're not going to do any of them well. Pick up one offense, learn how to run it, and run it well. And you know, everybody has their favorite offenses. People criticize the wing T or this offense or that. If you run it well, every offense works. It's, whether it's the wishbone or the I formation, pro set. If you block, you have kids that can block and kids that can run, the, that offense is going to work. Very well said. And you just mentioned two guys uh, that run the wing tee, Bob Wolfram and Rick Healy. I mean, I, I went against them all the 20 years I was the head coach. And, uh, you know, those, those kinds of programs, those guys that run those kinds of programs where it's the same year in, year out with a little wrinkle thrown in, they don't make a lot of mistakes. I always start my uh, preseason interview with Bob Wolfram with the same question. I'll say, you still running that wing T? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I know the answer. And sure. I, you know, because he's heard it too over the years. People criticize it and they, 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 they say it has some limitations or whatever. But you know what? I've seen them go 15 and 0, you know, reach play for right. state championships, 16 and 0. They won a state title. Nobody, you know, when they beat uh, Aliquippa that day, nobody was complaining about running the wing tee then. It well, worked. I'll tell you, we had a lot of, oh, oh my God, 20 years of great battles with Why Missing. That, that was a great series. Uh, a lot of respect between our staff and their staff, our kids and their kids. It was always, always a dogfight. No, th those were those were that was the the rivalry of the IC of the 90s, you know, because both programs were on top and those were such fun games. And, um, and, and almost every year I'd write, well, that was an instant classic because they, they came down to the wire and somebody made a great play or, you know, and, and those were those were so much fun. Those that rival rivalry helped define the intercounty league. It really did. It's one, one of the one of the three or four best uh, over, over time, I mean, now, you know, it became uh, Burke's Catholic and, and why I'm missing. And, of course, Central Catholic and Holy Name back in the 16th, 60s and 70s was the game, you know, that people lived for. And uh, um, uh, Conrad Weiser had great rivalries with both why I'm missing and with Muhlenberg for a while. Yeah. That was a that was yeah. a huge game for oh, you, yeah. too, when Al Silveri was there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of good games with Al <laughs> and Alan. Oh, right. my God. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Those those were those were great great games. The there's there's so much more scoring in the game now. When you were at Wilson, I mean, if you beat somebody fourteen nothing, it was like you you destroyed them, you know. And now, and if you don't score forty or fifty points in a game, it seems like the offense isn't working. What do you what do you attribute that to? I mean, the players are so much faster now, but they should be fast on defense. But but is it? You know, one of my theories is the seven-on-seven seven drills, which have been prominent for, what, 25, 30 years. And that's what teams do all summer long. They work on seven-on-seven, on seven, and it seems like the offense is ahead of the defense, and the defense can never quite catch up. Is that part of it? Well, you know, believe me, I don't look at myself as an authority on anything that you just asked there. But I will say uh, people are throwing the ball a lot more now. People are spreading you out, which creates seams and creates running lanes. And, uh, and with the speed that you mentioned that these kids have, you get into a running lane with speed and you're going to go for a while. Uh, so I think with the, with, 
with the offenses spreading out and throwing the ball more, the chance of their scoring is there. Uh, and maybe, and maybe just some of the defenses, it's tough to, it's tough to cover everything. I mean, it really truly is. Uh, back when I played, heck, if I threw the ball six, seven times a game, that was a lot. Well, you were calling the plays. Why didn't you just I throw was, it 30 uh, or 40 times because, a game? Because I had to come off the field to <laughs> Coach Gursky. <laughs> and you didn't want to come off the field to Coach Gursky if you threw an interception or, or, or you did something that he didn't like because he would hunt you down. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's I, You know, it's, I'm still... It's still amazing that that um, you know, he was letting you call plays, and that and that was commonplace at most programs. Do you think? Or? Like I said earlier, mm-hmm. Mike, I can't speak for other programs. I was under the impression that that's the way you did it. I was a naive high school kid at Wilson at that time, and I called the plays. Did you ever let any of your quarterbacks at, at Muhlenberg? Did you ever let any of your quarterbacks call plays? Uh, I would. Uh, always have a play or two that a that that a quarterback could call like a check down right. right a lot of times we would send a play in with a player and then later in the later in my career we started to put wristbands on our quarterbacks and our receivers and then I would just send in numbers he would look at the number on the and then call mm-hmm. it that way but uh, the reason that we started to do uh, or I would give a quarterback a play or two that he could always call whenever he wanted to. Sometimes when you send a play in with a kid, something happens between the sideline and the huddle, and now he gets to the quarterback, and he gives him some foreign language of a play, and the quarterback doesn't know, and he looks at me, and I'll say, call it. It's like whistle down the lane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it changes. You don't know what you get from the sideline until you get to the That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. Well, you're listening to the Mike Drago Sports com podcast. My guest is John Yoakum, the former Wilson quarterback and Muhlenberg head coach, Hall of Fame head coach. John, it's been a lot of fun sitting here. We're talking for an hour. I could go on for another hour or two, but I, I don't know. If, I if, feel the same way, yeah. too. This has been fun. Yeah, I'm just scratching the surface with you, but it's been great to see you again. And it was I, I really loved, you know, those years when you were at Muhlenberg. Those games were so much fun. And, and, uh, and, and you know, the Mule's quite quite a dynasty during that time. So thanks for joining us. Uh, We'll be be back here next week on the Mike Drago sports.com podcast. Thanks for listening.